Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. As Ryan said, I am Pastor Nano, um, or Pastor Nathaniel. Call me whatever one you want. I don't care. Um, but like I said, it's good to be with you. You know, they say when a young pastor starts preaching, he typically takes a chapter of the Bible, sometimes maybe even two chapters of the Bible, a large topic, and he preaches a 45-minute sermon on that entire chapter. Today, we're doing one verse, um, and they typically say that's what the older pastors do. And so I told Michael we're doing one verse, and he's like, well, when you're 30, we're going to be preaching on a couple words. Um, but you got two years, two years till that happens, so enjoy these two years, okay? Uh, we're continuing our studies in the Gospel of John. We are looking at the introduction to John. It's called the prologue. It's the first 18 verses, and we are on verse 14. And in the prologue, John is giving us all of the vital truths that he's trying to proclaim in the entire gospel of John. And so in these quick 18 verses, he's giving us these massive details about Jesus, the Messiah, who he is, what he does, what everything entails in his life and what he's done for us. And so this one verse, it holds one of the most important vital doctrines that we believe as Christians. This is one of the most important doctrines to us as believers. In fact, without this doctrine, we are not following the truth of Scripture. This is vitally important. We have to know this. We have to believe this to be believers in the true God. And I want you to remember, as we look at this verse, John 20, 31, John tells us, I write these things to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that you may believe he is the Son of God, and that you may have eternal life through him. And so as we look at this, my hope for you is that you know him as Messiah, that you know him as the Son of God, the eternal God, equal with God, and that you have life through his name. Let's go ahead and read the verse, and then after we do, we'll go ahead and pray. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We pray with me. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for the ability to be here, God. Uh, everything that we have, everything that we ever do, it is all because of you. You deserve all the glory and praise for it all. Please guide me. Please help me to speak your truth. Holy Spirit, please invade our hearts. Please open our hearts to the truth of your gospel. Please be true to your word and take out our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh so that we may understand and know the truth and come to it and abide in it and have faith in it. I thank you for these truths that John gives us and I ask that you would please help us to understand it the best that we can. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in verse 14, John starts and he goes back to a very important word choice. And that word choice is the word, or in Greek, the logos. And he continually calls Jesus 
the Logos. He did this at the very beginning of John. And we know that he's speaking about Jesus because when we get to verse 18, he specifically says, Jesus Christ, the one whom grace upon grace and truth comes through. And he calls him the Word, the Logos. Why does he call him this? Why is this so important? Why is this such good word choice? Well, it's important to both the Jews and to the Greeks, and this is the biggest audience for John. The Jews looked at the Logos, and the Logos was specifically the Word of God. And in being the Word of God, number one, it's the power of God. All of the power, all of the authority rest in the Word of God. We find that because when God created all things, what did He do? He spoke it into existence, right? And so being the Word of God, it has all the fullness of His power. You can find all of His power in His Word. But not only is it His power, but it's also the revelation of God. It is how God reveals Himself to us, and we believe this today through His written word through the Bible that God reveals himself to us. It is his revelation. But to them, it was not just written. It was also spoken. God specifically spoke to the Israelites. He spoke to the prophets. He spoke to Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so to them, it's his revelation. It's how we know who he is. God is invisible. Therefore, we cannot see him. So therefore, he reveals himself to us through his word. So it's his power and it's his revelation. But to the Greeks, it's very different. To the Greeks, the logos is a mystery. But they called this logos, it's this impersonal force that nobody understands, that nobody knows what it is or where it came from. But this mysterious force is the force that holds all things together. All things are held within the Logos. A really easy example of that is Star Wars. If you like Star Wars, you understand the Logos because the force is holding all things together. It's their source of power, right? But it's just the force. It's not personal. You can't really understand it. It's just where all things come from. And so if you put it all together, the Logos is all the power of God, it's how God reveals himself to us, and it's the force that holds all things together. And so for them, if they're reading the book of John, and they start with John 1.1, 1, 1, and it says, in the beginning was the word, they would go, okay, that makes sense. Well, the word has been there the whole time, holds all things together, it's the power of God, so cool. And the word was with God. Well, yeah, it's the word of God, so it's with him. And the word was God. And that might be a little confusing to them because they're like, I mean, I don't know how you can say his impersonal word is him, but I mean, it's his word, so it's a part of him. So sure, makes sense. And then verse two, he was with God in the beginning. And you think, well, that made it personal. Yeah, but some of you guys, you're gonna leave here and you're gonna look at your truck and you're gonna go, man, she is beautiful, right? But you didn't make your truck a person. You just gave it a pronoun. And they think that's what he's doing with the word. He's not making it personal. He just gives it a pronoun. He makes it important, right? But then we get to verse 14. And the entire thing changes. Because in verse 14, 
He says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And they would read that and go, No way. No way. That makes no sense. You cannot make something that's impersonal, personal. The word of God cannot become flesh. It's just his word. It's just his power. It's just how he reveals himself to us. It's not a personal being. How can word become flesh? But this is what John is telling them. And he's saying, no, listen, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. The word of God, his power, his revelation, the one who holds all things together became flesh and he dwelt among us. And he's telling us this is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. And if you really think about it, this is beyond human comprehension. This is beyond our comprehension. You cannot fully understand how can the almighty God, perfect in all things, completely separate from his creation. If he created all things, he is separate from it. How can he step into creation? How can he take on flesh? How does one simply do that? Well, we can read it, and we're going to do the best we can to understand that we can have faith and trust in this, but we can't fully understand that. This is beyond our human comprehension, because as humans, we have human nature, and as a human, you can't change that. You're a human. can't do nothing about it. Okay? Animals, they can't change and be who they want to be. They can't do what they want to do. They're who they are created to be, Right? So we don't understand how one can simply do things like this. But to understand, let's first say, what, what does this not mean? What does it not mean that Jesus took on flesh? Number one, it does not mean that Jesus changed from God to man. It does not mean that he changed from God to man. When Jesus became a human being, when he took on flesh, he did not trade his natures. In fact, Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And it's really important to understand that in the Old Testament, the Messiah is called God. Isaiah 9, 6. It's one of our favorite Christmas verses. It says, unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. And what does it say? He will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Mighty God. And in reading that, we have to see that a son is born, a child is given. And for this son to be given and for this son to be called Mighty God, it cannot possibly be talking about the Father. Because the Father is not a created being. The Father is outside of his creation. And the Jews fully understand that. They fully understand for this son to come, it has to be talking about somebody different than the God who already exists and the God who has already created. But he says this son will come and he will be called mighty God. And then it's backed up by Isaiah 7:14, where he makes it even more specific. The virgin will give birth to a son and he shall be called Emmanuel, which in Hebrew is literally translated God with us. 
God with us. So a son will be born to a virgin, again, a physical birth, a physical son, and he will be called God with us. And what this means is, is that the Messiah, the Christ, who is going to come into the earth, he has to be God or throw your Bible away. These two verses are enough for us to understand that if the Messiah is not called God, if he is not God himself, then your Bible is not true. Jesus can fulfill everything in the Old Testament. He can be the Messiah, he can be the Christ, he can come and he can reign and he can fulfill all the promises. But if he is anything other than God himself, then he's not the Messiah. Because these verses specifically say that the Messiah is God. He is God with us. You can't get past that. You cannot look at Emmanuel and say, I don't know, maybe he's a different God. No, there is only one God. And the Israelites, again, they knew this. There's only one. And for him to be called Emmanuel means he must be God. And then we go to the New Testament. And as Jesus comes in, over and over again, Jesus proclaims his divinity. He says the great I am statement. And the Jews pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because they think he's blaspheming. He's calling himself God, and they understood that. He's calling himself the Son of God. And I understand for us, we look at fathers and we look at sons, and to us, they're not equal. But to say that he's the Son of God, the Jews tell us he was making himself equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. If he was making himself less than God, they wouldn't have cared. They would have been like, yeah, this guy's crazy, but he's not, no. He's calling himself God, so we gotta kill the guy. And the point is, is he says he's God over and over again, but how do we know, how do we know that Jesus was fully God the entire time that he was on earth? How do we know that he didn't in some way let go of maybe a little bit of his divinity, become a human, and then after he rose again and went back to heaven, he became fully God again? I think this verse kind of helps us with this. John 14, 8 through 10. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Philip's like, hey, just show us the Father. Let us see him. Let us see who he is. Let us see the fullness of him, and that's enough. What does Jesus say? Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. When Philip says, show us the Father, does Jesus reply, man, I wish you could have seen me before I became a human. If you could have seen me then, you, you would understand. You would have seen the Father. Man, Philip, don't worry. You're going to see me. After I die, after I rise again, you're going to see me again, and then you're going to go, okay, I get it. Now he's equal with the Father. What does he say? Have you not been with me this whole time, and you do not recognize that I am one with the Father. And I think Philip's misunderstanding kind of gives us this glimpse that we can't fully understand this. Because when Jesus, or sorry, when Philip is looking at Jesus, he sees a man. 
He sees a man because he is a man. But he doesn't understand that behind that man is the fullness of God. Paul says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within him. He is fully God and he will always be fully God. And he was fully God with us on earth. But that leads us to point number two is that Jesus was not a special deified man. And what I mean by that is because Jesus was fully God does not mean that it changed the nature of his flesh. When he took on flesh and he he dwelt among us, he was fully man. His deity did not affect that in any way. He was just like us in all things. He was tired, so he slept. He was hungry, so he ate. Thirsty, so he drank. And he was even tempted to sin just like we are today, every day. He was tempted to sin just like we are. But it's very important to understand, even though he was tempted, he did not sin. Look at Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But look, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was like us in every way. He took on flesh and became like us, among us, fully. Fully God, fully man. And that's where the misunderstanding comes in. Because we think, man, that just doesn't make any sense. How can he have two natures at one time. How can he be fully man and fully God? But again, this is faith. This is trusting and understanding that when God says in his word, these are the things that took place, our job is to humbly submit and trust him. To take that place of saying, you know what? I can't fully understand you, God. I will never fully understand you, God but I choose to humbly submit to you because you are God and you are trustworthy and you gave your son to save us and so I give my life to you. And the third thing is, it does not mean that Jesus was like Toko the dog. And you're like, Toko the dog? Who's Toko the dog? Let me show you an image of Toko the dog if we got it, if it worked. This is Toko the dog. And if you look at that image, you go, that's not a dog. And you're right, that's not a dog, okay? That's a man. That is a man in a dog outfit. Toko wanted to be a dog. So Toko spent $15,000 in Japan to create an outfit that looked as realistic as possible like a dog. But here's the point. As much as Toko can try the best he can to look like a dog, can try the best he can to practice walking like a dog and eating like a dog and doing whatever he wants to like a dog, he'll never be a dog. He will never be a dog because he can't change his nature. He will always be a man within a dog costume because that's who he is. But understand, this is very important. Jesus was not God who took on the appearance of a man. In the Old Testament, angels took on the appearance of men. God, in some times, would take on appearances and show himself. But in taking on appearance, he was not becoming. But what does it say? 
and the word became flesh. He did not take on the appearance, but he became flesh. He became like us in every way. And so what does it mean? What does it mean? It means the eternal God with all of his eternal attributes, every eternal attribute that ascribes to the Father ascribes to the Son. That God who, who created everything stepped into creation and he took on human flesh and he became like us in every way without sin. He is literally the God-man, the God-man. And I will tell you this, he will be the God-man for all eternity. Jesus will be fully man and fully God for all eternity. He took on flesh and he has become flesh and he still has flesh till this day for all eternity. But why? Why did he do this? Why did God step into creation and take on flesh? Hebrews 2:17. Therefore it was necessary for him to be to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then, understand, then, because he became like us in every way, then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of his people. Jesus became like us. He took on flesh so that he could give up a perfect sacrifice to the Lord for the sake of my sin and for the sake of your sin. And that blood sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice that God desires so that there could be redemption of sin, he had to take on flesh. He had to become like us. For there to be a sacrifice for human beings, there had to be a perfect human being sacrifice. And the only one who could be that sacrifice is God. Do you understand when it says the word perfect sacrifice that there is only one being who has that title of perfect? There is no other being with that title. And even in the Old Testament when he says, I want you to get a lamb without spot and without blemish, right? You can say, well, they got a perfect lamb. There is no such thing. There's no such thing. And so they could do the best that they could but there's only one who has the title of perfect and it's our God. And that's why he stepped into creation because he loves us and he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 puts it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Watch this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father will be glorified because all people and all creation will glorify the Son. And I've said it before, God says in Isaiah, the only one who is worthy of glory is God himself. But yet we see here that Jesus will be glorified, he will be exalted, and all knees will bow 
to him because of his love, because of his grace, because of the fact that as sinners, he would still come and take on a body and make himself a servant to die for us, to die for sinners. He became a servant for us. That is love. That is love at its finest. And I ask you, the question is, this verse says explicitly, every knee will bow to Jesus. Meaning, every person in this room will bow to him. But the question is, is will you choose to get on your knees and bow to him now? Or will you get on your knees and bow to him when it's too late? Because one way or the other you will bow, but one is going to be a bowing of remorse because you're going to bow and realize I was wrong and he will say depart from me because you did not bow to me you did not come to me you did not recognize that you needed a savior for your sin and the only savior that that could be is the one who came and took on flesh and took our place for us and so I say to you would you humble yourself and would you submit and would you bow to your savior who loves you and gave his life for you. Would you do that? And this brings us to point two. He says, the word became flesh. And then number two, we have beheld his glory. We have beheld his glory. Let's read the whole verse again. It says, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John says that when Jesus was here, we fully witnessed his glory, and he explains the glory. He says, it was the glory as of the only Son from the Father, meaning this, it's the glory of God. It's the glory that God has, and we witnessed it in Jesus. We saw it in him. It's the glory as of the only Son from the Father. The only one who can have that is God himself, and we saw his glory But what does he mean by glory? What does he mean by this? Well, the glory of God, simply explained, is simply the full nature of God. It's who he is. His glory is who he is as a person, as a being. And in his glory, we get all of his attributes. All of his attributes show his glory. They explain who his glory is, and not only do they explain it and show it, but they give him glory. When we see the attributes of God, it gives us the glory of God, and it gives glory to him. And we see this in Exodus 33. And this is when Moses asks God, and he says, God, show me your glory. Please show me your glory. I want to see it. I want to see it with my eyes. I want to witness it. Haven't you ever thought that before? I want to see the glory of God. I want to witness it with my eyes. And I want him to show it to me. This is what Moses asks. Verse 18, he says, Moses said, please show me your glory. But look at the response of God. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What's fascinating to me is that Moses asked to see the glory of God, 
And God begins to talk about his attributes. I'm going to have all my goodness pass before you. You're going to see my goodness. And I will be gracious to who I will be gracious. And I will be merciful to who I will be merciful to. And what God is telling Moses and what God is telling us is that his attributes show his glory. When you experience the attributes of God, you experience the glory of God. And his glory is shown in everything that he does, in everything that he's created, in everything that you see with your eyes, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the clouds, the rain, the thunder, lightning, your bodies, the animals, the trees. It shows us the glory of God. Every attribute explains his glory. And of course, yes, the glory of God is manifested sometimes. And after God explains this to Moses, he says, okay, now I'm going to pass by you and you're going to experience my glory, but just a little bit, because if I show you all of it, you'll die. So you'll get just a glimpse. And when his glory is manifested, it is always manifested in light, always light. And get the picture, light and darkness, the light of God, the glory of God his perfection, his goodness. That's why he says, my goodness will pass by you. And when we get to heaven and we are in the glory of God, when you will see the full extent of his glory, you're going to experience every attribute of God when you see his glory. It's, it's, it's profound. You're going to see the glory of God fully but you're also going to experience the glory of God fully. You're going to experience his love. You're going to experience his grace, his mercy, his holiness, his perfection, his omnipotence, his omniscience will all fall upon you as you see the glory of God with your eyes. That is what is so incredible about his glory is that you don't only see it, you experience it as you experience who God is. And again, when we experience the glory of God, what do we do? We give him glory. We praise him. We exalt him because of the experience of his attributes. And this is what John is saying about Jesus. He's saying when Jesus was here, we fully experience the glory of God. We experience the glory of the Son of God. We witnessed his grace. We witnessed his truth. We witnessed his love. But not only that, we saw his power. We saw his holiness. We saw his righteousness and his perfection. And in all of it, we witnessed the glory of God and we saw it with our eyes. But he also did see the glory in the transfiguration of Jesus. When we look at Matthew 17, verse one through three says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the writer of this gospel, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And look, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Jesus showed these three men his glory. They witnessed it with their eyes. But I think John is saying, because you got to understand, that's maybe like two minutes, three minutes. 
of witnessing with his eyes the glory of God. But I think really what John is saying here is, listen, the whole time we were with him, we experienced his glory. We saw his glory. We saw everything that is in him is every attribute of God. Every glory that is given to God is given to Jesus because he has all the same attributes and everything is ascribed to him. And I will tell you this, my friends, have you experienced the glory of God? And what I mean by that is have you experienced his attributes? Have you experienced his love? Have you witnessed his love through the cross? Have you seen how much he loves you? Have you seen how much he wants to be gracious to you? How kind he wants to be to you? How much he cares about you? How much power he has in creator of all things and the holder of all things? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Have you experienced that? That he is sovereign over your entire life. That everything that takes place in your life, he is in control of it. Have you experienced these things? And if you haven't, I can tell you right now that you can. That Jesus wants you to experience his glory. He wants you to experience his attributes. But you must come and you must humble yourself. And you must say, Lord, I want to see you for who you are. I want to know you for who you are. I want to trust you for who you are. And not only that, um, but the more we know him, the more we will experience his glory. And so if you're sitting in this room and you've already experienced it and you love him for the things that he's done for you and your faith and your trust is in him for the things that he's done for you, you can continue to know and experience the glory of God the more you draw close to him, the more you seek him, and the more you trust him. And no, it's, it's not gonna compare. Nothing will compare to the day that we are with him. Nothing will compare to that. But we can still experience it here. We can still be in the midst of our God. He came to be with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to have a relationship with you and with me. And so we can experience the glory of God if we should come and we should follow him and put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the eternal son of God. Let's go ahead and pray. And I'd just like to say before we wrap things up, you know, I, I understand. I understand if you're here today and you struggle with trusting that Jesus is God, that a man who walked on earth 2,000 years ago is God, I understand why you struggle with that. Because, like I said, we're human. We're human. It is hard for us to comprehend. It is hard for us to understand. But the truth is this. God's word is clear. That Jesus is God. And 1 John says that if you reject that he is God, then you reject God entirely. We must come. We must humble ourselves and trust in him. And all I plead with you is this. If you're willing, if you've seen the truth, if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes today and you have witnessed the truth, do not deny it. Come to it. Give your life to Christ and trust in him. But if you're still struggling with this, 
just ask. Just humble yourself and say, Lord, if this is true, show it to me. Show it to me. Let me see that it's true. Let me know that this is the truth so that I may trust in it. God, I ask that you would help us and guide us in your truth. Um, There are things in your word that are hard. There are things that are hard to understand, but I, I know, God, that you do love us. You do cherish us. You tell us these things over and over again. And so I would just ask that, Holy Spirit, you would be gracious and merciful to us, and you would show us your truth and guide us in it, Lord. Please help us to humble ourselves, to look to your word as our truth, not ourselves, not the external world, but only to your word, Lord. We love you. We thank you for all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?